Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As the war continues in Ukraine, more than 5 million have left. That's according to the UN Refugee Agency. Some Ukrainians have found their way to Connecticut. Any refugee will tell you the journey to safety is a complicated one, and it takes many hands and hearts to assist people who often have made split-second decisions to save themselves and their families. Today, where we live, we talk to Connecticut residents helping Ukrainians who've arrived in our state. Coming up, we hear from a West Haven woman who opened up her home to a Ukrainian family of five after posting on the independent website, Ukraine Take Shelter. We also talk to a grad student at UConn whose family is still in Ukraine. Do you have questions about how to help? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me first is a local immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalina who has helped at least some Ukrainians come to Connecticut. Dana Buchin is an immigration attorney, as I mentioned, but her journey to help Ukrainian refugees didn't start at JFK or Logan Airport. She traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border to help Ukrainians there. Dana Buchin, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. I want to let our listeners know you're also the Honorary Consul of Romania to Connecticut. So let's start there because you have a personal connection to helping Ukrainians. Tell us about it. Yes, I am Romanian-American, and uh, having seen images of Romanian compatriots of mine uh, going to the border with Ukraine, to pick up refugees and host them, feed them, just make sure they feel safe. I felt very inspired to do the same when they came to my border, the border with the U.S. and Mexico. I've seen the images of Romanians lining up for miles with their cars at the longest border. Romania shares the longest border with Ukraine, and they lined up there to just pick up refugees even before the governmental agencies got to be there on site. So it was ordinary Romanian citizens who inspired my journey to the Tijuana-San Diego border checkpoint. I went there um, to join a volunteer-led effort. Uh, It was led by a lot of churches from the California, Ukrainian and Russian speaking communities. And um, I posted about my journey, about my decision to go to the border on social media. And a fellow immigration lawyer uh, decided to join me. So there were two of us, uh, myself and Vanita Patil who headed to the San Diego-Tijuana border checkpoint. And when we got there, we signed up as uh, volunteer pro bono lawyers. And uh, we accessed two points where we met with a lot of refugees. The first point where we went was the San Diego side, where the refugees were emerging successfully from having crossed the border checkpoint. 
But then after we stayed there for a while and interacted with folks who were successful in crossing the border, we realized that the biggest use of our talents was on the other side, on the Mexican side, where the largest refugee camp laid and where people needed a desperate they had a desperate need for legal services to understand how to legally cross the border and what were their rights and obligations after they did so. So we crossed the border and we went to what we call the hub, which is a refugee camp, like an entire refugee camp that hosted in the past caravans from Latin America and now was hosting Ukrainian refugees. Uh, while I was there, I interacted with about 2000 refugees and uh, they had this camp made of an, a huge gym where people slept at night. And then there was an outside um, area, a perimeter that was very well guarded by armed Mexican guards because it wasn't in a very safe area of Tijuana. And um, so they had an in, inside space and an outside perimeter. And on the outside perimeter, there were tables set up, including for pro bono legal services for lawyers like myself. And that's where we served all these refugees who came with questions. And the questions abounded, ranged from, you know, what do I do if I'm a mixed Ukrainian, um, non-Ukrainian family, as sometimes is the case, including U.S. Ukrainian families were there. And so why, a little, Dana, Dana can yes. I ask, why was this uh, set up at the Tijuana, um, uh, San Diego border in terms of the, you know, helping Ukrainians come into our country? My understanding, there were two reasons. That's where Ukrainians started to crash at the border first. Um, I saw articles about how many of them just kept arriving at that border checkpoint. And the authorities noticed a growing humanitarian crisis, seeing all these Ukrainian refugees basically sleeping in the bushes near the border checkpoints. And so the Mexican authorities decided we have to do something about this. We have to host these people somewhere. So they opened the same refugee camp that has served many other Latin American caravans. Um, so that was one reason. The second reason is uh, U.S. border and uh, U.S. Uh, Customs and Border Patrol set up a streamlined processing of Ukrainian nationals at that particular border checkpoint and nowhere else. It was a way to streamline 50, 50 refugees per hour, 700 to 1,000 refugees per day who would be processed for entry in the United States on humanitarian parole. It just, they just focused all their um, resources right. on streamlining the vetting and the checking of, of refugees in that particular border checkpoint, which came with advantages and disadvantages. So one advantage was that indeed, if you held a Ukrainian passport, you went very fast through 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 that uh, checkpoint. However, if you were from a mixed family of Ukrainian married to a Russian citizen or Ukrainian married to a U.S. citizen, it was going to be very difficult. And in fact, those were the difficult cases that I had to counsel. Um, I, I can give you the example of a U.S. Ukrainian uh, U.S. Ukrainian citizen, so a, du a dual citizen, married to a Moldovan citizen and with three U.S. citizen kids 
one of whom didn't get to obtain a certificate of citizenship because he was a one-month-old baby and they never got a chance to touch base with a U.S. consulate abroad to register his birth. But in essence, that baby was a U.S. citizen. And the difficulty was that the spouse, the the wife, was a dual U.S.-Ukrainian citizen. And when she presented herself at that border checkpoint for Ukrainians with her Moldovan husband, she showed her U.S. passport, thinking that that would make it easier. However, that backfired because the authorities take the position that if you're a U.S. citizen married to a foreign national, you should do things through the proper channels of submitting a family reunion petition through the consulate abroad, etc. Except that that process takes 12 to 18 months. And this couple fleeing war didn't have 12 to 18 months. Um, even under emergency procedures, a uh, U.S. citizen marrying, marrying a foreign spouse would take six to eight weeks. This family didn't have six to eight weeks to wait around. They had to flee immediately and to the only place where they had a connection, which was the U.S., Right. And you know, so you've, you've been doing this work for some time, but when you saw, you know, all these people gathered, uh, you know, again, trying uh, to cross the border, you know, how do you keep your emotions in check? You must have heard um, some really um, compelling stories uh, of what people have experienced uh, leaving Ukraine. I have learned to channel my emotions and make them move me to action rather than uh, freeze me. And that's how I use my emotions. I did, I did hear a lot of stories and the particular ones that really, really affected me were the stories of Mariupol, uh, refugees. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of, um, minors mm -hmm. from Mariupol. And I'm sorry, I'm, ch I'm choking up just talking about it, but a lot of kids there were, were there without parents for a reason. And um, when I saw photos of their destroyed houses and they were telling me that their parents are still caught in Mariupol, they're still stuck there because of lack of any humanitarian corridors, that, that's very hard to process. And so, but those emotions push me to pull harder for these people so that at least these minors and and their their relatives they came with whatever relatives could grab them right. uh, at least these folks should seek safety in the united states so those those are the types of actions that emotions lead me to do you're hearing dana buchin immigration attorney at Martha kalina and honorary consul of romania to connecticut she's talking about a, a trip she took uh, to the Tijuana-San Diego border just a couple of weeks ago uh, to help Ukrainians who had gathered there, gathered there fleeing the war. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So that was the process just a few weeks ago. Uh, now, uh, because uh, this situation is very fluid, we know the Biden administration has announced a, a new program to help Ukrainians uh, with uh, I think 100,000 expected that they will admit to our country. Can you tell us about this program? And do you think it'll work out better than what you experienced at the Mexican-U.S. border? Yes. So I am very glad that we have a 
paperwork-based program that would bring refugees directly from Europe or wherever they happen to have been displaced. Um, it's a program where residents of Ukraine who were residents there prior to February 11 and were displaced as a result of war can now come to the United States on humanitarian parole for two years provided they have a U.S.-based sponsor, someone with legal status, either a U.S. citizen, a permanent resident, someone here in lawful non-immigrant status that who has not violated their status, et cetera. And that sponsor would have to go through background and security vetting, as well as financial vetting to ensure that they are capable of, fi of financially supporting refugees for two years. Um, the refugee would have to have a valid Ukrainian passport, and if they don't have a valid Ukrainian passport, they need to be the immediate relative of a Ukrainian passport holder. Also, the refugees themselves would go through vetting, background and security checks, and public health checks, such as vaccinations, etc. And if all these conditions are met, then paperwork can be um, submitted for them to pick up uh, at a U.S. consulate abroad and to come here to the United States directly, not through Tijuana, but rather through a direct flight to, to the United States. Now, my concerns with this program is I'm happy about it. However, I really do hope that it will not meet the same fate as the Afghan parole program, which and this is still the case for a lot of us who filed the Afghan par parole applications, the vast majority of Afghan parole applications have been denied nationwide. And so I am hoping that this is a more serious program and that USCIS will in fact grant the vast majority of, of these parole programs. Um, and so that, that's my, my concern about it. And if Afghan experience is any indicator, it would take three and a half months or so for USCIS to vet and uh, decide the case. That's three and a half months where I, I don't know what the refugees will do during these months. And hopefully they will seek safety in a European country in the meanwhile, um, I, I decry the closing of the Tijuana-San Diego border. I understand why it's necessary, but it was a much more expedited approach to admitting Ukrainian refugees to the United States. Now that it's closed, we only have this humanitarian parole. I call it the overseas humanitarian parole program, program for Ukrainians. And like I said, it could be a lot of bureaucracy. It could be a long wait. And at the end of the day, you are, it's an exercise of discretion. It's not, a, we cannot take it for granted that they will be approved. Mm -hmm. It's at the discretion of USCIS. And if you read the text of the announcement, it sounds like there's a prioritization. They give priority to certain groups. And if you're not part of those certain groups, one may wonder whether you're going to meet with favorable discretion. Mm -hmm. I am 
Hopeful, though, that we will treat it better than the Afghan parole program, although I wish we treated the Afghan parole program just as good. (laughs) Um, My goal is that all immigrants should be treated just as good as Ukrainians and not that Ukrainians would be treated less because right now they need they need this help. They absolutely need it. I understand you've helped three Ukrainians um, arrive in in Connecticut in the last uh, uh, couple of months. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Sure. Um, I do want to thank the Romanian-American community because they they helped me fundraise for the cost of the plane tickets. So through the association Romanul, nonprofit 501c3, we raised enough funds to pay for free plane tickets for Ukrainian refugees whom uh, I picked at the border. They were the one, the very difficult cases that needed a lot of help to cross legally the border. And um, one of them is a couple, it's a, is a mixed Ukrainian-Russian couple. The Russian citizen though has been a resident of Ukraine for a long time and um, I don't mind sharing this with you because the couple themselves share this all over the news. So it's out there in the open that um, they they had a very difficult time crossing the border as a mixed couple. And it was in, on their third attempt that they finally succeeded. Uh, and again, that's because that border checkpoint was specifically done just for Ukrainians. So when they have mixed nationalities, they the bureaucracy doesn't deal very in a very streamlined approach with with mixed couples. So that was that's the story of one of them um, from Kiev. And uh, the third refugee was a another special case that needed a lot of help. It took me two days walk, to walk through the border checkpoint, a different one, not the one for Ukrainians, a different one with this particular case. And it was on the s- second attempt that we succeeded. Wow. Again, you're hearing Dana Buchin, an immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalina, honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut, talking about her efforts uh, to help Ukrainians uh, be permitted uh, to come into the U.S. after fleeing the war after the Russian invasion. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Before we head to break, uh, Dana, you know, in the past when uh, there are uh, humanitarian crises and refugees are trying uh, to um, enter the the U.S., there's a lot of involvement by refugee resettlement agencies. But with this particular program that the Biden administration uh, unveiled, so what will be the involvement of refugee resettlement agencies, if at all, uh, with some of these Ukrainians who will be coming to our state? I think uh, while they don't have an official role, at least not in the announcement of that that was made by the White House, they could reserve to themselves any role they wish. And I personally look forward to connecting with agencies such as IRIS, Immigrant and, um, and Refugee uh, Integrated Services in New Haven, uh, because we have already established uh, some sort of partnership uh, with Romanian-based refugee agencies that are in the trenches of of the refugee crisis right there. And I look forward to exploring together what we can do together to bring more Ukrainian refugees, particularly from Romania, to Connecticut, and how to best serve their needs while here. 
We're going to continue talking with Dana after the break, and we're going to hear from some local residents who have opened up their homes to help newly arrived Ukrainians. Are you one of them, or do you have questions about how to help? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Late last week, President Biden announced a new program to streamline efforts to help Ukrainians coming to the U.S. CNN reports that the Biden administration has pledged to permit 100,000 Ukrainians into the country. My guest, Dana Buchin, is a local immigration attorney who's helping refugees uh, apply for humanitarian parole. And under this new program, Ukrainians must have a U.S. sponsor to legally migrate here. Uh, Joining us now, we want to talk more about some of the Connecticut residents helping Ukrainians who've been fleeing the war. Uh, my next guest had space at her home, so she was able to connect with Ukrainians looking for hosts and housing through the site Ukraine Take Shelter. It's an independent website created by Harvard students. Gay Heyer joins us now on the phone. She lives in West Haven. Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. It's delightful to speak with you. I was really uh, also delighted to hear about uh, how you opened up your home uh, to a Ukrainian family of of five. Tell us what what made you do so. Well, we were all watching with horror what was going on when Putin was massing 180,000 troops on the border of Ukraine and all all three sides that he could get to. And I just felt that this was that he was going to invade, despite everyone saying, "Oh, he'll never do that." And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help. And there was in, on the news this announcement that these two brilliant students from Harvard had come up with this secure website. And I thought, well, my daughter is married now to the house. I have a room. I have a, an extra bathroom. And so I registered. I didn't really expect to hear so soon. I figured most people would want to stay in Europe because they're going to want to go back. Um, But because we are here in West Haven, we're right near a major university and a a major teaching hospital with a cancer hospital and a children's hospital. And then once the war actually started, seeing all of that horror with the maternity hospitals being bombed and the cancer hospitals being bombed, I thought, 
you know, this is really necessary. So I registered, but I didn't expect to hear so soon. And then um, it's three weeks ago yesterday, uh, sorry, three weeks ago tomorrow, I got an email dated 4.40 in the morning saying that these people found me on this site and they couldn't stay where they were and they were arriving in New York the next day, Thursday, and was the room still available? So, of course, I emailed back and said yes. Wow. And on that Thursday, the next night, they showed up at my door at a quarter to nine. So, again, this website is ukrainetakeshelter.com. Correct. And so, and so how did you prepare? So this is a family of five. Tell us a little bit about them, including young children. Uh, it, it's a couple, and they're three little boys, age six, four, and one. And the one-year-old had his first birthday in a refugee camp in Germany. Fortunately, he's too young to remember that someday. But, um, yeah, they, they were from Kharkiv, and they woke up the first morning of the war by being bombed out of their apartment. And they, their apartment building was next to that maternity hospital that was bombed. And all, their, all the glass in the building blew out, and so they ran down into the basement parking garage and uh, they spent three days there with the three children in a car in a basement parking garage. And the shelling got worse. And they decided, you know, in the lady's words, she said, either we leave or we die. So they got everybody in the car and they started to drive. And she said that what should have taken 10 hours to get across the country took three days because they had to keep hiding when they heard heavy trucks or tanks because they didn't know who it was. But they made it to the Moldovan border and wound up in a Moldovan refugee camp. I'm not sure what happened to the car. Um, so they were there for a bit. Then they wound up going to a Romanian um, refugee camp. And they were there for a bit. And then they wound up being transferred to a German refugee camp. And they were there for a couple of weeks. And then I don't know what the circumstances were, but they said they couldn't stay there any longer. And that's when they heard about the site on their end and saw that there was a, a place here. And he has a brother here, the, the father of the family, but he's in a small situation and couldn't take the whole family. So they, they looked online, found me. And then um, because the lady is very savvy about Internet and, and that sort of thing, she just got tickets and they came in on a visitor's visa. Wow. And, and so you, and they, there they were. So you had an extra room and a bathroom, and now you have a family of five uh, with mm -hmm. you. There's probably listeners who are thinking, you know what, I have some space. I want to help, too. And they may go to this website now uh, and, and register. But what would you like to tell them about, you know, you know how you helped um, this family and how you prepared? Uh, it's really a, a whole community response. Well, I, when I found out what was going on, of course, I thought, Oh, I'm not ready yet, but I have to be. So I did call um, the Ukrainian Church, St. Michael Archangel in New Haven, and ask them if there was anybody who could help me with translation, because I don't speak Ukrainian. And I didn't know, you know, the, the emails were in English, but I didn't know if they were using a translation program or not. So I called the church, and they said, yes, they had people who could translate. And I called the... Um, Slavic department at Yale and asked if there might be a graduate student who'd be kind enough if I needed it. And one called me back and said, absolutely. And so she was standing by. 
And um, I also said, oh, my gosh, I need a high chair. I need car seats. I need a kitty gate. And we need a crib. So I just put the word out. And people have been incredibly generous. I mean, people were just calling and showing up and saying, here, here's a car seat, here's a crib, here's, here's a kitty gate, you know, what else do you need? People handed me envelopes with $25 for milk for the children, which, you know, they drank it all. Um, and the city of West Haven was incredibly welcoming. They had everybody, once they got here, they had a, a, a pizza party from Zupardi's Pizza. The Zupardi's family brought a wonderful party for them, and they were able to meet everybody in the city hall in West Haven, including, and most importantly, the people from the Board of Education and the English as a Second Language teachers, and they got the, sixth, uh, the six-year-old into first grade right away, within a week, um, and, uh, you know, trying to normalize things and, and have some kind of structure for the kids as quickly as possible. So everyone has been just incredible. Sounds like a, a wonderful welcome. Uh, Connecticut Public Reporter Ali Oshinsky was in West Haven when this family arrived. Yes. Uh, Yevgeny and, and Christina are the name of the parents. Yes. I understand that they have family in Boston and New York City. And so are they looking uh, to stay with you until the fall? Or what's the latest? No, they've been out very diligently looking for okay. some place where they can where they can live for the next year or so because they know that it's not going to be they're not going to be able to go back. They have no place to go at this point. Um, so they're they're trying to find some place near New York, near his brother. Um, and they're out there every day looking for an apartment or a condo or a house they can rent, something. Mm-hmm. So that it's more normalized. I mean, our house is, is fine, but, you know, we don't have a, a playroom for the children. We have a backyard, but, you know, it's... And the kids are sleeping on blow-up mattresses, you know, that kind of thing. So... They need to have their own place. I was talking with Dana Buchan earlier, who's a, a local immigration attorney, and we talked about you know, her personal connection uh, to Eastern Europe, and, and you have that personal connection as well, Gay. Yeah, the, the thing that, of course, gets me at a very deep level is um, my own grandmother came from an area in Ukraine that is... Right now, it's in Ukraine. It's just just the Ukrainian side of what is now the Polish border. Um, her family was in a, a place called a shtetl, which was a rural ghetto for Jews. And um, back before the First World War, and they uh, in 1910 there was a pogrom, which is basically a massacre, a Russian massacre of the people in the shtetl, and the shtetl was burned and destroyed. And my great-grandparents and my grandmother and her two brothers had to run, and they made it out of the shtetl, and they got, as far as I'm able to piece it together, because she would never talk about it. Um, From other relatives, I heard that they got to Odessa, and they took a boat, and they wound up in New York. And my great-uncle, my grandmother's younger brother, was born on the boat in New York Harbor waiting to land. (laughs) So they were always very proud of him being the first American. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your story and for the fact that you opened up your home uh, to this family. You sound like a good neighbor, Gay. Well, thank you. It's it's my my pleasure, and you know, and and as a as a human being, to a certain degree, it's it's my responsibility. 
Gay Hire again as a West Haven resident. Thank you, Gay. Thank you for having me. Dana Buchan is still here with us. So Dana, did you want to respond uh, to, to Gay's story about how she connected with this family of five? Yes, I believe we actually met at the Ukrainian uh, church in New Haven, and uh, and I think I even met her family. Um, and I wanted to say that to the extent this family arrived to the United States on a B-2 visitor visa before April 11, they are now eligible for temporary protected status for two years. And that also comes with the right to apply for a work permit. And I just quickly wanted to raise awareness about the fact that work permits in this country still take six months plus to process. And that has been an issue even with my three refugees because we're, we've applied for work permits and uh, we're told, you know, six plus months after May 31st, President Biden promised that it would only take three months. So this is a new reform to shorten the time for processing the work permits. But it is important to understand that even if it takes only three months, that's three months that these refugees cannot work and they depend on on the public for a substance. And uh, for example, our three refugees, they already have job offers. The minute we open it up and we asked uh, who, who wants a uh, hearing aid specialist, a dental office manager and a caregiver for the elderly, boom, we already got job offers, but they cannot start working until they get their work permit in, in three plus months. And so that's a feature of our immigration policy, not even law, but immigration policy that we want to raise awareness and try to make it better for legal immigrants in this country to get work benefits as soon as possible, especially in this job market that needs more workers. That's an important point you raise. Are you hearing anything from our uh, congressional delegation, even the governor, about how to help uh, these residents? Um, I I personally found that, uh, for example, Senator Blumenthal was uh, incredibly helpful to our efforts to, to get these refugees uh, legally across the border. So when we reached out, he assisted us in that endeavor. And they're, they're generally very helpful with the issue of integrating these folks in our local uh, job market. The problem is at the federal level because work permits take so long to process for no good reason, in my opinion. If there's anything we could do to shorten it, even from three months to shorten it down, that would be just what these folks need to rebuild their lives. You know, while millions have left Ukraine and we're focusing on the Connecticut residents who are helping these families, there are still Ukrainians uh, in Ukraine and there are people with uh, connections uh, to Ukraine that live in our state, uh, like my next guest, Vladimir Gupin, who's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Connecticut. Vladimir, welcome to our show. Hello. So I I understand that your parents are still in Ukraine. I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, what you've been hearing from them. Uh, Yes, my parents are in Ukraine. My sister uh, with her children is in Germany. Um, Well, it was really hard for first several weeks, uh, I would say for the first month, because my parents and my family and I originally were, uh, we were living in uh, Kiev, which is the capital region, 
And um, as you know, uh, the city was blocked in the north and northwest and uh, in northeast. Well, my parents were sheltering in place in the rural area south of Kiev, so they were in relative safety. But, well, it's, it's safe until it's not because the front lines were uh, less than uh, 40 miles from where they were. So it was nerve-wracking experience through those months, uh, through that month. But then, when Ukrainian uh, forces were able to push Russians away, chase them away from that area of Ukraine, now it's safer. But they still are reluctant to go to the city because they are afraid of um, bombing. They are afraid of uh, rocket attacks, which are. Um, like every night the, uh, the sirens go off and, uh, people are sheltering in their condos and their houses. They go to bomb shelters. I have friends who literally spend a day, uh, at home doing work stuff. And then they go to sleep in the bomb shelter. That's, mm. that's the routine now because it's also the fact that they, uh, Russians do rocket attacks at night. Mm. They, they always do it at night. They never do it. Um, they either do it right after dark or uh, early morning hours. It must so be that, hard. That is part of it. It must be hard for you to focus on on your studies and your work here when you're worried about your parents. Uh, are they going to continue to shelter in place? What do you want them to do? It was very hard. Uh, then it is a little bit easier now. Um, I was trying to persuade them to come here, and it was very emotional for all of us. Um, they don't want to come because they are... Um, my father is 70, my mother is 68. Uh, they don't want to leave their place. They don't want to leave their country. Uh, they don't want to leave their friends. Um, they feel some kind of um, obligation to stay on one hand. On the other hand, their whole life is there. And I was talking to my mom yesterday about the program, and her reaction to that is great, but I'm 68. The board permit is great opportunity, but not for me. So um, we're still looking at the situation. We're closely monitoring it. And if it happens so that it's going to be really unbearable or really hard, um, they will come here, they will stay with me, we will figure it out. But at this point, they just don't, they don't want to go anywhere. But that's just the situation we're in. Well, I hope that they remain safe, Vladimir. Uh, we've been talking, as you've heard, uh, with a local immigration attorney who's helping some Ukrainians get humanitarian parole, as well as some uh, Connecticut residents opening up their home. What's your response to that? And what do you want uh, Connecticut residents to know who might be thinking of, of also doing the same, helping Ukrainians who have made the decision to come here? I was very touched by what... Uh... Uh, I think it was Kay, I think, a uh, Connecticut resident in West Haven who took in uh Ukrainian family. Um, it's, it's, it, it's really important. So I'm even getting a little bit emotional right now. Uh, because that, that is, 
what people do is 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 the greatest thing that they they can do. When I hear stories like that, I'm very grateful uh, and I'm very happy that it's happening. And um, I honestly don't have much to add in here because um, everything that's being done is, is is done to 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 help people. But at the same time. I agree with Darren, Darren about uh, work permits because mm-hmm. Ukrainians don't come to you have to depend on so on any kind of welfare. On well, the, the the thing is, you you can't get any welfare. That's another thing. Uh, but uh, work permit process has to be hastened. You can't like you you come to the country. Yeah, great. You have. Uh, a right to stay for two years, but out of two years, uh, three months are carved out to wait to get your um, work authorization. And during those three months, and under ideal circumstances, we're not talking about six months plus, or we're not talking about situations where some weird glitches happen at USCIS. I went through immigration process myself. I know how it can happen, and uh, Dan can can also agree with that many interesting things can happen through immigration process that has no relation to the case or anything. It's just use USCIS arcane processes that no one ever understands. I don't even think that USCIS clearly understands all of them. So uh, it's important for like to I don't know influence through senators, through representatives because. Um, work is really important part of our lives and it would help people to cope with the situation they're in and also no one likes to be dependent. Right. It's great that uh, there is such a warm welcome from local communities but no one wants to be dependent on local communities or on their host families. People want to be uh, self-reliant. Right. And that is the, the most important thing. And, and it's, imp- it's also important to recognize because uh, in Europe, the process is way faster. The problem in Europe, though, is while many Ukrainians have knowledge of English, uh, not many of them have knowledge of, for instance, German or French. It's, it's way less. It's not taught in schools as much as uh, English is taught. And But at the same time, in Europe, if they want to... Um, get a, um, not a refugee statue, it's slightly different, but let's call it refugee statues. They can get it, get it in two weeks, and that comes with a work permit. So they can start working immediately if they want to. And unfortunately, the U.S. Um, is doing the right uh, step in the right direction right now with this program. But there's room but for improvement, definitely. Yeah, there, there is room for improvement. I was very glad to hear that this program is now open to everyone, not just for people with familial ties. So that is an important uh, step in the right direction as well. But then again, there has to be something done with work permits. Mm-hmm. I uh, I also read all of the legal information related to all of that. And I just don't understand why can't it be issued together with a sponsorship form or when they go over the security checks, why can't they receive uh, work authorization uh, on their arrival? Right. Well, thank you, Vladimir, for joining us to tell us a little bit about your story. You keep in touch with us. We hope that your family remains safe. 
Thank you. Thank you for That's having me. That's Vladimir Gupin, a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshaw. We're going to continue talking with immigration attorney Dana Buchin uh, after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. With us on Zoom today, Dana Buchin, an immigration attorney at Martha Kalina and honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. You know, Dana, we've spent some time talking about this new uh, program to grant humanitarian parole to Ukrainians trying to flee the war. Uh, we just heard from Vladimir, and, and you had also talked about how the work permit process uh, needs to be expedited. I'm wondering if you can give us some broad s- strokes, though, when we think about uh, Biden's immigration policy uh, so far in his presidency, you know, <laughs> when you compare it to the, to the past administration? Sure. Um, before before we go into, into that, I just wanted to mention one last thing about work permits. The entire European Union grants Ukrainians the right to work immediately upon entering the any of the EU countries. Uh, we, Romania was at the forefront of this by granting them the automatic right to work upon entry. So I just want to mention that it's as easy as that. If you're going to grant Ukrainians the right to come onto your territory, it should be accompanied automatically by the right to work. But if you look at the Uniting for Ukraine guidelines right now, you notice that the right to work for Ukrainians, even under this new program, would kick in by a special, by you making a special work permit application after you arrived in the United States. And it would take three to six months to to decide. And it's discretionary. It's not automatic with humanitarian parole. It's discretionary. I don't yet know what that means because nobody, none of us has yet tried it, uh, but we're about to find out. Um, my challenge would be, why should it be discretionary? Why should there be um, an additional work permit application to begin with? Why isn't humanitarian parole for Ukrainians coming automatically with work permit privileges? And to remind the audience that uh, the in this country, work permit ties into the social security number. There is no social security card or social security number until you get work privileges in this country, either by coming here on a work visa or getting a work permit. So without a social security number, you cannot open bank accounts, you cannot obtain a driver's license, you cannot unlock the benefits of American society. So it is crucial that we put pressure on the administration to to basically give work privileges immediately upon entry. If we're going to do this, we might as well do it right and not let the Ukrainians be at the mercy of the Mm -hmm. public for three to six months. Um, As to the other immigration policies, you were right. We're going in the right direction, but it's uh, a tad bit too slow uh, for immigrant advocates like myself. There's a lot of things, a lot of reforms that can be implemented even without a legislative fix, like the work permit situation. That's a regulatory fix. And it's easy, as far as I'm concerned, it's easy to do. An example of how 
how it happened with spouses of L1 visas. L1 are multinational managers and their spouses come with a visa that, that you have to apply for a work permit. So what happened, there were so many delays in the L2 work permit application process that there was a class action lawsuit and uh, a judge order ensued that, that obligated the government to give L2 spouses work permits incident to status. So ever since then, that's how they get it. They, as soon as they enter the United States, they have the right to work. And this is what we need to do for the Ukrainians as well. And it shouldn't take a class action lawsuit <laughs> to get the government to do this, not through legislative reform, but through simple administrative and regulatory reform. Of course, we need broader legislative immigration reform in this country because for 25 plus years now, we failed to fix our outdated immigration system. We're in the 21st century and we're facing new realities, new refugee crisis, climate change, and a lot of other economic forces that impact our labor supply and demand. And so right now we have completely insufficient numbers to serve our economy, especially now when we have a labor deficit. We have only 85,000 H-1B visas for a demand that's almost half a million every year. And that's a big labor deficit. If we, if we ask ourselves, why do we have such a labor deficit right now? Partly it's because of the stagnation in the legal immigration field for five years now due to the Trump policies combined with COVID, COVID issues, um, slow processing due to COVID, remote work, et cetera. So five years of a, almost stop, a slowdown, if not a stop in the legal immigration faucet is now leading to major labor deficits. So what we need is immigration reform as well as regulatory and administrative reform to restart the legal immigration faucet. So we have enough labor supply for, for our labor markets. Well, Dana, thank you so much for your insights and for the work that you're doing to help uh, Ukrainians enter the US. We'd love to check back in with you in a, in a few months. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's Dana Buchin, an immigration attorney at Martha Kalina, an honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical director. Katie Pellico is on the phones today. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>